This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nick Bryant, welcome again to Better Reading. It's lovely to be here. So I spoke to Nick recently and I found him so fascinating. Uh, The conversation I found incredibly fascinating. And I know you listeners loved it because we had a tremendous amount of downloads. And so I've asked him to come back to talk to us about his book, When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. So much has changed since our last conversation, but I will introduce Nick for those that don't know him. Before becoming the BBC's New York and United Nations correspondent, Nick Bright was based in Washington, South Asia and Sydney. He is a regular contributor to several Australian magazines and newspapers, including The Australian, The Spectator and The Monthly. And he has reported on some of the world's most prevalent issues and topics with a keen political understanding. A history graduate from Cambridge with a PhD in American politics from Oxford. His latest book, as I said, is When America Stopped Being Great. Well, there is so much. I mean, surely at some point, uh, I don't know when we can say that America is great again or is America still great or will it ever be great? Oh, look, that's a really worrying thought and a question that I address in the book. I mean, and I'm not optimistic, I have to say. I mean, those who regard the election of Joe Biden as some sort of panacea, I fear will be disappointed uh, because Donald Trump managed to get so many votes. This election showed that America is so very divided. And here we are, you know, a couple of weeks after the election, and there's not even agreement on who won. I talk in the book about how in the 21st century we've spoken about a post-American world. And in the book I say we're now in a post-America America. America. And I think this election has shown that. Well, I mean, he got over 70 million votes. But let's get this right. Joe Biden got over 76 million votes. And I was, I had a party at my place. I think I told told you I was having a party the last time we spoke. And you might have forgotten because you might have been a little bit distracted in the last couple of weeks. A little bit busy (laughs) maybe. (laughs) But I feel, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel because of the pandemic and because postal votes were voted last, the whole outcome could have been perceived differently if everything had been voted, counted at the same time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it played out really as many of us thought it would play out. I mean, Donald Trump did get more votes than I think many of us expected. He got 47% of the electorate, and that was higher than I think some people thought. But what happened on the night and the days afterwards were pretty much what we thought would happen. There would be what was called a red mirage early on. Donald Trump started doing very well because he'd encouraged his supporters to go to the polls on the day. And in the main, those were the votes that were counted first. And then, of course, as the postal ballots were 
sent in and counted, you know, Joe Biden started enacting what was called this blue shift. And although on the night he was 500,000 votes down in Pennsylvania, he'd lost Florida. A lot of people thought, oh, my goodness, here we go again. It's 2016. They started freaking out. Well, the Biden campaign didn't. I was with them in Wilmington, Delaware, and they said all along, we're not that confident about Florida, but we really believe that we're going to win Wisconsin, we're going to win Michigan, we're going to win Pennsylvania, we're going to take the road to the White House through the Rust Belt, the job that Joe Biden was essentially hard to do. And do you know what? I reckon we're going to get Arizona and Georgia as well. And that prophecy on the night, which was based on data, they knew where their postal ballots were, ended up turning out uh, as the result um, a few days I, later. I did tweet that that night because, you know, we didn't know and we were all feeling very disappointed. At the time, we thought that, you know, because all the odds were changing and in Trump's favour, because of the counting process and because of COVID and because there were so many postal votes. But I did think on the, no on the night, if you have shares in polling companies, sell them now. Yeah, the polling wasn't good. Um, the polling it's was supposed. Terrible. This polling was supposed to have corrected, and clearly it didn't. I mean, Joe Biden didn't end up with a double-digit lead. Um, Joe Biden, you know, had sort of pretty close victories in a lot of key states. I mean, Wisconsin. The polling was showing he was up sort of between six and nine percent. He ended up winning by twenty thousand votes. So, you know, the polling is really unreliable. And I think there's a reason for that. I think a lot of Trump supporters now regard polling organisations as part of the media establishment, and they don't want to participate in these polls. And partly because of that, the polls have ended up being very inaccurate for the, for the second election running. Mm. Mm -mm. So there's a few things that I want to talk about. Some people first. <laughs> so we're talking about, we've already talked about the popular vote, 79 million to 73 million. I mean, that's clearly 6 million more. And we've got an electoral vote of 290 versus 232. And we've got a president that won't concede defeat. Yeah. And again, that was predictive, wasn't it? Because he'd said all along, really, that if he lost, it would be a rigged election, although, of course, there's no evidence of that, and that he would contest the results. So what we're seeing is is what was telegraphed by Donald Trump um, all along. What's scary, I think, is how many Republicans seem to believe him. I mean, we're just talking about how unreliable polling is, but there is a poll that suggests that half of the Republicans who voted for Donald Trump believe that he won the election, um, where he clearly manifestly lost I mean, none of the lawsuits that Donald Trump has pursued so far have changed any votes. And what the legal strategy seems to be is to muddy the waters, create as much doubt as possible so that under this bizarre electoral system that America has, the Electoral College, where you vote for electors who then elect the president, then Republican state legislatures around the country will overturn the elections in their states and appoint their own electors to the Electoral College. That seems to be uh, the, the, the strategy right now. They know they're not going to you know, overturn the votes. They know that recounts aren't going to deliver the sort of votes they need to overhaul a lead in Wisconsin of 20,000 votes. I mean, Wisconsin recounts generally change a few hundred. It seems about trying to create doubt trying to deny Joe Biden a mandate 
and try to delegitimize this presidency from the very start. It is really mind-boggling, um, but I'm going to I'm going to stick with it. I, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, what kind of person has he become? The journey of Rudy Giuliani, I think, is is the most extraordinary, and also the the hardest to explain. I mean, Rudy Giuliani obviously was the great hero of 9/11. Uh, George W. Bush had a terrible sort of 48 hours after 9-11. He couldn't find the words to express the magnitude of the attacks. There was times, obviously, where he was trying to avoid Washington, so he was sort of flying around the country. And um, he was absent for a lot of 9-11. And, and in that absence, you know, into that vacuum stepped Rudy Giuliani, the then mayor of New York. He became such a national hero that he was actually called America's mayor. And, of course, he had presidential ambitions of his own, and he was seen as a moderate um, in the party, somebody whose moderate views would actually prevent him from ever winning the Republican presidential nomination. So the alliance now that he has with Donald Trump is is kind of hard to explain. There are some people who think that he's prolonging this whole legal process because he's the president's law, he's getting legal fees. Uh, but he does really seem to have drunk the Kool-Aid when it comes to Donald Trump. I mean, four years ago, I thought it was partly out of a hatred of Hillary Clinton. He despises Hillary Clinton. You know, Hillary Clinton's not around anymore. And in, in many ways, his relationship with Donald Trump is even closer. And of course, in the aftermath of the election, we, we've seen this kind of madcap melodrama play out where, you know, Trump signals that there's going to be a press conference at the Four Seasons. We all thought it was going to be a luxury hotel. It turns out to be a landscaping company in Philadelphia with a sex shop on one side and a crematorium on the other. And in the midst of it all is Rudy Giuliani, who many Americans would have seen recently in a Borat movie. And frankly, this looked like a scene from Borat as well. You know, the journey of Rudy Giuliani is very hard to explain. And frankly, I can't explain it. Okay, I'm going to hit you with a few names. William Barr, explain that. Well, William Barr is the Attorney General. Um, He served briefly uh, as Attorney General in the first Bush administration, George Herbert Walker Bush. He was seen as a sort of member of the Republican establishment. When he took over from Jeff Sessions, who you remember was the first senator, an Alabama senator, to to support Donald Trump, and he was rewarded with the attorney generalship. And then Donald Trump grew extraordinarily frustrated with him because you remember he recused himself uh, in relation to the Russian meddling investigation And his deputy, a guy called Rob Rosenstein, ended up appointing Robert Mueller as the special counsel to look into Russian ties and Russian meddling into Trump's election victory in 2016. Anyway, when William Barr came along, it was seen as he was a sort of far more, a figure of greater rectitude, of greater sort of legal scholarship, who'd be a kind of much straighter kind of attorney general. And he's actually turned out to be a real, you know, famously after the Mueller report was published, he kind of misrepresented its findings, so much so that Robert Miller broke his silence and actually held a press conference to say, my findings are being misrepresented by the Attorney General. And William Barr, after this election, has also told the Justice Department that they can participate into looking into whether there have been any irregularities, whether there has been any voter fraud. And of course, for many people, that sort of eviscerates and incinerates the firewall that is supposed to exist between the White House and the Justice Department. And in this, William Barr is 
is seen as the arsonist, the person who's burnt that firewall down. Do you know, I think if you're in public office, particularly that level, you must at some point wonder how history will perceive you, right? And when you think of Bullion Bar, what I think of is the riots in Portland, the removal of children from their parents. I mean, they are atrocities that are going to be, really, they are his, the brainchild of him, and he needs to live with that. It's, it's extraordinary, I think, that a person that is meant to be non-political has gone down that track. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, when you think about how will history regard this? Because, yeah. you know, there's, there's two different realities for two different Americas right now. Uh, and the, the kind of next step would be that there will be two very different histories. And in Republican minds you know, William Barr will be seen as a hero, um, just like Rudy Giuliani will be seen as a hero. In democratic minds, you know, I don't think history will obviously be very, very kind to him. You know, obviously historians try and be sort of politically neutral to instantly objective as they sift the facts. But, you know, you wonder about the utility of history going forward in America right now because, you know, the two Americas just do have such a different view of what is going on. And there isn't an agreed upon set of facts. And this election, again, has shown that, you know, America can't even agree right now on the numbers that are being counted, the votes that are being counted in a presidential election. But it's not that American can't agree. America is being brainwashed. He is such a marketing um, guru, Trump is in a way, that he plants the seeds and launches a marketing campaign. And these people, again, using your words, have drunk the Kool-Aid. Even the electorate has drunk the Kool-Aid, the 70 million that support him. It's not the truth, is it? Well, it's what they would regard as the truth. It isn't an objective truth. Um, it isn't a fact. But, you know, there is this kind of alternative reality right now and this impossibility, it seems, of reconciling fact on one side and, uh, and a very different interpretation of them on another, um, you know, the internet's got a big part to play in it. The fact that America seems to be a sort of confederacy of conspiracy right now. You know, Fox News, some of the evening anchors like Sean Hannity, you know, are super spreaders of this misinformation. But it's interesting right now that Fox News is coming under fire because it called Arizona early on the night for Joe Biden. That was a key moment. It kept him in the race when a lot of people thought it was all over. And Fox News now is being usurped on the right by news organisations. Well, I use the word very, you know, <laughs> they're not news organisations, they're sort of propaganda organisations, really, like Newsmap, are spreading this misinformation and benefiting from viewers who are going away from Fox because they don't believe that Fox is right-wing enough. You know, again, you, you just have this huge problem of, you know, misinformation and conspiracy theories. And, you know, it's metastasizing right now um, in this weird aftermath of, of the election. Some of the theories, like if you look at QAnon and what a movement that is, and I'll say it again, and I'm sure I said it to you last time. I mean, you know, often these crazy uh, right-wing groups are full of hatred and greed. And maybe some of these aren't greed motivated. They're just hatred motivated. But you look at the conspiracy is about some kind of pedophilia related to Hillary Clinton, isn't it? Is that what the, what's the QAnon theory? Well, QAnon is this theory that there is a cabal a high-level cabal of paedophiles and that Donald Trump is 
is trying to vanquish them. And then um, you look at his association with Ghislaine Maxwell and what was the guy that she was associated with? Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. And yeah. they're two of his friends. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, it doesn't. I mean, and then you get into these sort of Pizzagate situations where, you know, yeah. there was this conspiracy that there was a pizza restaurant in Washington just down the road from the White House where there was a cellar where kids were, you know, being imprisoned and abused and that restaurant didn't even have a cellar. Um, oh. It wasn't the, the centre of this conspiracy. And yet a gunman, you know, drove up from the American South and started firing outside of it. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, frightening and, and deeply worrying. And Well, it is um, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, there is proof that these people were engaged in child sexual offences and he's defending and protecting them in all of his language and yet that's okay but this pedophile ring that's never had any proof of it existing is something that they they grab onto. Yeah one of the things that Donald Trump was asked to do in a town hall meeting that he ended up having with NBC as an alternative to the second presidential debate uh, which got cancelled because of COVID and and his own infection you know he was out he was invited to condemn QAnon and, and yes. you know, as with yes. the far right groups like the Proud Boys, he didn't really do it. And in fact, what he tends to say in these situations is, oh, I don't know much about them, but um, he said, you know, it's a good thing, surely, that they're against paedophilia. So, I mean, it's a sort of tacit endorsement. And, you know, that's been hugely problematic for so many people um, who voted against Donald Trump that. You know, he gives credence to these conspiracy theories and, and obviously a lot of the time, especially when it comes to the election, he's a spreader of the conspiracy theories. He's a spreader of every conspiracy theory out there. Okay, Mitch McConnell. Well, Mitch McConnell is a Senate majority leader who has been supportive up to a point of the president's stance. His position right now is that Donald Trump should be allowed to have these lawsuits and let the legal process play out. I don't think for one moment that Mitch McConnell thinks that Donald Trump has won this election. I mean, he's a numbers man. He understands politics. But I think for Mitch McConnell, this is about delegitimizing Joe Biden. And this is a Republican play that we've seen before. We've also seen the Democrats do this after the 2000 election, the disputed election in Florida. You know, they denied that George W. Bush was the legitimate winner of that election. And because of that, they tried to deny him any sense of a mandate. But the Republicans have done this repeatedly. I mean, if you go back to the Clinton administration in 92, Bill Clinton won with 43% of the vote. The vote was split between three candidates, as you remember, George Herbert Walker Bush, Ross Perot, this sort of proto-Trump, this Texan businessman who was the first billionaire to mount a serious bid for the White House. He ended up getting a large share of the vote. And because of that, Bill Clinton won the presidency with just 43% of the vote. And the Republicans thought, we're going to deny him legitimacy. And Bob Dole, who was then the Senate leader for the Republicans, said, we're going to represent the 57% who didn't vote for Bill Clinton. You saw it again with Barack Obama. You know, Donald Trump's birth to campaign was very much about delegitimizing Barack Obama, saying that he wasn't an American, saying that he wasn't born on American soil, you know, implying that he was Muslim rather than Christian. You know, this delegitimization of presidents has been a recurring feature for 30 years now. This is the most extreme version of it we have seen. But this has been the play 
mainly by the Republicans, but the Democrats have done it too for the last 30 years. And it's one of the reasons why we've reached this point of chronic dysfunction, why we've reached this point where, you know, America, if you look at it, really hasn't had a properly functioning government where everything is firing as it should uh, for at least a quarter of a century. Do you know what I was thinking of too the other day? Voter suppression. And I've got to tell you, I only kind of heard of that term a few years back now when I was in San Francisco and they were talking about it one night with a friend of mine. I don't know how you call it a democracy when the only way you can get in as a party is to stop people from voting. Explain that to me. The Republicans have faced the demographic dilemma uh, really since the beginning of the century. They know that America is becoming more multiracial. They know that by 2045, America will be a minority-majority country. They know that they face a demographic death spiral. And so what has happened in recent decades is the Republicans have tried to maximize their own base, which is predominantly white, and they've tried to suppress the Democratic vote, which obviously tends to attract more minority support. And that has been... Well, many people would say, no, it isn't democratic. I mean, a healthy democracy is one that would encourage everybody to vote. And indeed, that was the kind of basis of American democracy, really, you know, from the the 1960s when the landmark civil rights laws were passed, the Great Voting Rights Act of 1965, which enfranchised African-Americans in the South and stopped the sort of voter suppression techniques that had been used during the Jim Crow segregation era, where You know, African-Americans who wanted to vote were asked these ludicrous questions. You know, how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap? Interpret this obscure part of the state constitution. You know, questions that were impossible to answer and became the basis of denying them the vote. The 1965 Civil Rights Act was designed to stop all that, and it did. And there was general consensus between the Republicans and the Democrats, I think really until about, you know, the year 2000, that everybody should be allowed to vote. But we've seen a real erosion of those voting rights um, since then. Because of this demographic death spiral, the Republicans especially have been far more focused on trying to deny people the vote by getting more voter ID laws, trying to strike criminals off the rolls, and often that ends up including other people as well, you know, just making it more difficult. And it has been a huge problem. And you know, worryingly, the Supreme Court has actually validated a lot of these voter suppression tactics. They've sort of gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it's enabled the Republican Party especially uh, to rely more heavily on voter suppression. I find that concept absolutely mind-boggling. Okay, so where were you on the night? So what camp were you at? I was in the Biden camp, actually. I was in a car park in Wilmington, Delaware, which was the venue for what was supposed to be the victory party, which eventually happened. It happened on Saturday night, but we were there from Tuesday night. And it was really interesting because about 7.30 on election night in 2016, the Hillary Clinton campaign knew they'd lost. They really had a freak out moment. They were just seeing numbers from all over the country, and especially in the key battleground states, which just suggested they were going to have a really bad night. Now, by contrast, the Biden campaign this time around was seeing numbers that they thought were great, and they were super confident. And I was surprised that they were so openly super confident, given the false prophecies of 2016 
and how the mood in the Clinton camp went from absolute joy. I mean, they were celebrating early on because they thought they were going to celebrate this famous victory. And then all their aides started disappearing and you just couldn't find a Clinton aide to speak to. The Biden camp were very different. Even when those early numbers came through in Florida, they're saying, well, we didn't think we were going to be in Florida, but look out for Georgia. Look out for those three Rust Belt states. Look out for Arizona. And actually, they were right. And the reason they were right is because of the mail-in ballot. They knew ask for the ballots. As you know, in America, you have to register as a Democrat, a Republican, or Independent. They knew that so many of those mail-in ballots were going to be Democratic votes. And there was just this confidence throughout. And day after day, as the votes were being counted and, you know, Donald Trump's lead in Georgia suddenly started evaporating and Donald Trump's lead in Pennsylvania suddenly started evaporating and he overtook him in Wisconsin, he overtook him in Michigan. You know, all of their prophecies were borne out. It was extraordinary how throughout the whole thing, when a lot of Democrats around the country were having this sort of freak out moment, the Biden inner circle were just super confident throughout. They just thought they got it early on. And, you know, they were right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And how did you feel? Well, I was covering it. I, I was covering it, and I was intrigued by their confidence, as I said. I mean, I'd seen the overconfidence of the Hillary Clinton camp four years ago. I was at the Jacob Javits Convention Center where they'd hired this big convention center with this massive atrium with this big glass ceiling that Hillary Clinton was figuratively supposed to smash. You know, just as the polls were closing, and I was really in touch with their top people. I mean, I spoke to Ron Klein, who's ended up, will be his chief of staff in the White House. I mean, he was telling me, there's nothing that I see out there that I'm worried about. And we've got it. And again, you know, I was just surprised that they were being so openly confident. But, you know, they were seeing the numbers and they were right. Mm, They were right. Okay, so I don't think that Biden's going to be the saviour that everybody thinks he's, well, a lot of, not everybody, a lot of people think he's going to be. But I do think his actions in the last however many days that he's been president-elect has been very calm and calming. Would you agree with that? Uh, He's a... A sort of calming presence. Um, he's not an electrifying presence. You know, he's not a Barack Obama. No. He isn't a Bill Clinton. But for many Americans and, and the people who voted for him, obviously they see him as a sort of steadying hand right now. And I think, you know, the fact that he has had this long story of personal grief puts him on the same emotional plane right now as so many Americans. I mean, tonight we've crossed an awful catastrophic new threshold, 250,000 deaths because of coronavirus. 
And, you know, the fact that Joe Biden lost his first wife and baby daughter in a car accident in the early 70s, he lost his son, Bo, to a very rare form of brain cancer five years ago. You know, he is a naturally empathetic figure because he has suffered so much grief and bereavement in his life. And I think that, you know, puts him on, as I say, the same plane as so many Americans at the moment. And at a time, of course, when Donald Trump really isn't saying anything about coronavirus at all, Seriously, and I think I think those 250,000 families should sue him for negligence. It isn't even on his agenda while people are dying. Where's the plan? He spoke the other day. He, he held a Rose Garden press availability about the development of a vaccine. But for months now, he hasn't attended a meeting of the Coronavirus Task Force. And obviously, you know, the focus for him right now is on his own political survival, and his political future may be, because a lot of people think this is kind of teeing up a, a run in 2024, rather than, you know, we were talking about how history will judge, judge things. Well, you know, history will judge this very, very poorly. At one of his rallies, he said he was sick of coronavirus, corona this, corona that, I'm sick of coronavirus. And there are 250,000 families that have lost someone. I just find it extraordinary. And I think, you know, people talk about whether he'll be in jail uh, post-presidency. Well, surely there is going to be some kind of lawsuits out from those people where they had a president who chose to ignore the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure you could launch that kind of class action suit. Um, you know, as you know, presidents are generally immune from that kind of legal action. I'm not sure if that will happen. But history will judge him very poorly, I think, on his handling. I mean, you know, it's hard to think of a kind of more catastrophic domestic policy failure of the last 50 years than the Trump administration's handling of coronavirus. Mm. I mean, you think of some of the terrible blunders of the last few decades, you know, Clinton deregulating or not having a sufficient sort of regulatory framework for for prescription pain-killing drugs, which which led to the opioid crisis in America. You know, that was obviously a, a huge one. Uh, and the foreign policy often obviously think about the, the blunder of Iraq and the strategic blunder of Vietnam, which shed so much American blood. But it's hard to think of a domestic policy mishandling that has ended up with such catastrophic consequences as, as coronavirus. So do you... I'm not quite sure. There's there's some woman, um, Emily Murphy, who's decided that she's the general services administration person that is not going to allow the Biden-Harris access to any kind of smooth transition. I mean, unbelievable, right? And you've got a president that's behaving like a toddler or worse than a toddler because I think that gives toddlers a bad name. And so you've still got two months of this. And those figures could possibly, if no one's looking and if no one's watching and if no one, I mean, you know, here in Australia, I think in New South Wales anyway, we're at 10 days of no cases and we have a daily briefing of what's happening with COVID. But you've got this over there where there's just no interest from the current administration and you've got the new administration trying to do something and they're being held up by a general service administration person and a president that's not willing to concede. How do you see us coming out of that? How do you see the US coming out of that? Look, I think that's kind of failed state territory almost. I mean, were we in another country, in another continent, discussing a president that refused to accept the results of an election in the midst of a pandemic that was killing, I think, 1,500 people a day at the moment. It'll be 2,000 a day before too long. I think 
over the past two weeks, the number of cases has risen or daily cases has risen by 79%. You've got a really terrible situation here. And as you say, this, this situation where a meaningful transition or any kind of transition just isn't happening at the moment because, you know, the Trump administration just won't agree to it. I mean, this is not the way that America is supposed to work. The whole point of the transition is to give the incoming administration time to prepare with the cooperation of the outgoing administration. It's it's always happened. You know, when Barack Obama and Donald Trump, you know, there was a orderly transition, even though they were polar opposites. You know, Bill Clinton to George W. Bush, it's always been an orderly transition. And it's not happening this time at a moment when America is facing this appalling crisis. So how do you see this ending? I think America is almost in a state of cold civil war at the moment. And let us hope that the, that cold civil war never gets hot. My worry in this scenario three weeks ago was that there would be flashpoints there was the possibility of election-related violence. Now, thank God we haven't seen that right now. And I think one of the reasons maybe why we haven't seen it is there isn't a focal point right now, as there was in 2000. In 2000, obviously, the focus was on Florida, the recount. There was an actual recount that was going to matter. And you had situations, there was this thing called the Brooks Brothers riot, where a bunch of sort of chino-clad Republicans stormed this office where votes were being counted to shut down the vote. Now, that was a Chino-clad militia. It wasn't a militia carrying AR-15s. And that was my concern going into this election, that if we did end up with this disputed election, as was so predictable, you could have flashpoints like that and you could see violence. And thank God that hasn't happened. And like I say, I just hope this sort of cold civil war that America's in right now remains cold. Because I've never known disunion in this country like this before. I know we fought, America fought a civil war, you know, 160 years ago. I know that we went through the the divisions of the 1960s. I've I've written about that myself. But, you know, in the 60s, there was a workable politics that helped America get out of trouble. Moderate Democrats came together uh, to fashion those great civil rights laws of the 1960s, the 64 Civil Rights Act, which dismantled segregation, the 65 Voting Rights Act, which gave everybody the right to vote. There was this compromise. There was this this moderate middle that allowed America to function as it was supposed to function. That moderate middle is not there anymore. You know, that bipartisan cooperation, that patriotic bipartisanship at moments of crisis just isn't there. So at some point, somebody's going to get him out. So is that the army? Is it the CIA? Is it the Secret Service? I mean, at some point he has to exit, right? Yeah, he does. I mean, uh, you know, the process is that the the votes will be certified, the Electoral College will meet. If there are any sort of shenanigans, the Electoral College will obviously make Joe Biden the victor. Uh, Then it goes to Congress. Congress will ratify the vote. And then we arrive at Inauguration Day on January the 20th at noon. And at that point, Joe Biden will become the president. And at that point, you know, Donald Trump faces a choice if he hasn't made it already, you know, how he wants to make his exit. Because an exit he will have to make. And whether he does so voluntarily or whether it takes a a pat on the shoulder from somebody. I, I mean, that's the fascinating thing, how this plays out for him personally from here on in. You'd have thought that at some stage 
a Republican leader like Mitch McConnell will drive down Pennsylvania Avenue and say, Mr. President, you know, it's time, it's time to go. You know, it's time to give, give up this fight. And that's what happened in Watergate. You know, you had three very senior Republicans drive down Pennsylvania Avenue and basically tell Nixon, if you don't resign, you're going to be impeached and removed from office. So he resigned. But again, I mean, whether those Republicans exist now in the same way that they did in the Watergate era, I just don't know. But you would hope that somebody like Mitch McConnell would ultimately say to Donald Trump, you've exhausted your legal challenges, you've got to go. Okay, the scenario, if he, let's say he doesn't, who, what agency goes to get him? That I don't know. And I'm not sure if it's even been contemplated. Um, okay. Now, do me a favour, Nick, if there's footage of them dragging him out, you need to send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's that footage of him being dragged down. You're going to be seeing it on Twitter. You'll be seeing it on Facebook. You'll be seeing it on the BBC. You'll be seeing it on every single media outlet in the, in the world because it'll be some of the most extraordinary shots that have ever been taken in the history of the American Republic. I don't know how that plays out. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, surely Donald Trump in that sort of scenario would have agreed ahead of time that he would, he would go. You can't really imagine a scenario where the Secret Service has to bundle him out. We will see. We, we will can't see. assume anything, can we? Anyway. Well, I mean, this, this was a guy that after COVID even thought of coming back from the hospital mm. wearing a Superman outfit mm. and ripping off a shirt and mm. revealing a Superman outfit. Of course, what we so, saw was, was very sort of made for television anyway, you know, the salute to the helicopter, oh. the... The, the taking off the mask. I mean, it was all sort of very um, sort of action hero stuff, but he has got an eye for the great sort of entrance and exit, I think. He certainly has. Now, I want to end on a positive note, so I'm just going to say Kamala Harris. As vice president or as a potential? Well, both. Look, I mean, it's a historic first. She's the first woman of colour, first person of colour, sorry, to ever be a vice president, and she's the first woman um, to be a vice president. I mean, many people thought that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden was the sort of dream ticket, even though, of course, she tried to take him down in one of those presidential debates in the Democratic nominating process where she criticised Joe Biden for, you know, not having the best civil rights record of, of all around the busing. contenders. Yeah. Around busing. And, you know, there was criticism of him for doing deals with segregationists in Congress who were then Southern Democrats, of course. Um yeah, so it'd be interesting to see how that vice presidentship plays out. I mean, obviously, there's more focus on the vice presidentship this time because Biden is so old. I mean, he's 77 now. He'll be 78 by the time he becomes president. He's the oldest president that we've ever seen. Yeah, his health seems to be in pretty good shape. There are questions about his stamina, I suppose. You know, he hasn't fought a conventional campaign. When we saw him in R in New Hampshire... Earlier in the year when he was fighting a conventional campaign, he was a very poor candidate. You know, he had a problem in, you know, speeches became these sort of rambling soliloquies. He sort of, anecdotes didn't make any political point. He was terrible when he wasn't using a teleprompter. You know, there, there were questions about, you know, whether this guy who was kind of offering the soft jazz after the heavy metal of the Trump years could hold a tune himself. So it will be interesting to see, you know, what sort of vice president she becomes, how activist she'll become how prominent she will be in the Biden White House. And then, of course, there's a tantalising question of whether Biden will be a one-termer 
and will look to retire at the end of his first term or whether he'll seek the office again. I mean, he will, by that stage, be what? You know, he'd be 82 on his second inauguration date if he won in 2024. You know, so there is this expectation he is going to step down after one term. And, you know, then you're going to have this fascinating, you know, prospect of Kamala Harris running for the Democratic nomination and the possibility, of course, of, of Donald Trump running for the Republican nomination. Okay, well, then that, that's kind of lukewarm news then, not ending on a good note, but ending on a, oh, gosh, please, God, no, and I'm an atheist. <laughs> that well, Donald Trump hasn't gone away, and I think that's the key thing. I mean, it's worth stressing again, you know, how we started this conversation. You know, so many people have voted for Donald Trump. Mm. The idea that his election in 2016 was some kind of historical accident, let's bury that notion once and for all. You know, 47% of the American people voted for him. He's got more votes than any other candidate in American history other than Joe Biden. You know, he smashed the record that was created by Barack Obama in 2008 in terms of the number of votes. Obviously, Biden got many more. But, you know, there's a huge number of people in America who watched his presidency, have read the fine print, and are still prepared to click enthusiastically on the terms and conditions. Okay. I didn't want to end on this note, but I am going to ask you this question because I don't know the answer. If he serves time, because I know he'll probably try and pardon himself, but that excludes state prosecutions, right? So let's say he gets convicted in the state of New York and he serves or even just gets a conviction. Can he run again? Um, I mean, look, it depends what he was convicted for and whether, you know, he had to serve time. I mean, you know, he will be in a certain amount of legal jeopardy when he leaves the White House. You know, this idea of a preemptive pardon doesn't insulate him from prosecutions that are mounted by the states. Um, Mm. It gives you immunity from federal prosecution, but not state prosecution. And there are a lot of prosecutors in New York who are going to be gunning for Donald Trump and the Trump family. I think one of the questions for prosecutors is, how far do they want to take it? Because going after Donald Trump would obviously inflame him and it would have the potential of inflaming his base. Mm. And at a time when Joe Biden is trying to heal this country, which I think the divides are just unbridgeable, you know, does he really want state prosecutors who are controlled by the Democrats in New York? Does he really want them pursuing Donald Trump and, you know, and making a sort of legal martyr out of him? I mean, that, the, the, these are really interesting sort of legal questions but they're overlaid by a political dimension as well Mm. that always worries me though because you know there is a criminal element to him not all my friends are in jail all his friends are in jail it does say something about the man well not all of his friends are in jail um you know some of his uh, i mean uh, yeah i mean we've never had indictments of, you know, Paul Manafort was his campaign manager. Roger Stone was his unofficial advisor for years. He was indicted and found guilty um, in, in the, uh, during the Trump years. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I, I mean, I'm in New York and, you know, I can look out my window right now and see the court complex over the river. <laughs> and, um, you know, we often wonder, you know, is, uh, we won't be covering Trump in the White House, but and will we be covering Trump in court? That's one of the interesting questions of the next few years. Okay, so just on this final note, and I'll let you go, I heard this somewhere, that he, Donald Trump, would not have qualified for CIA clearance, but he did qualify to be the president. Yeah, this is a very germane question because there is this question of whether Biden will actually withdraw 
his high-level security clearance. I mean, for presidents that have served and secretaries of state and CIA heads, you know, they generally keep their security clearance beyond their years in office. This seems a courtesy. Obviously, there's never any question about their loyalty. That is a question for Joe Biden that is being discussed. Um, should he take away Donald Trump's security clearance? Oh, right. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was being discussed. But that shouldn't be uh, something you need to think about for a very long time <laughs> because he's going to sell it to the highest bidder. Don't you think? <laughs> or are you just not going to answer that? <laughs> Okay, Nick Bryant, it's always fabulous uh, chatting with you, truly. I mean, I think you do a marvellous job of being um, a neutral reporter and that's what makes you so excellent. Anyway, the book is called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. And I'll speak to you next time. Please stay safe over there. We will. I know we're, we're in the midst of another COVID spike and it's, um, it's worrying. And, you know, today the New York schools shut down and mm, we look at Australia and I mean you know Adelaide's it's rampant across America right now and it's 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 worrying and like I say you know you have this crazy situation where you've got a president who won't accept the result of an election and, and a coronavirus that is spiraling out of control and yeah. you know it ain't the America that I fell in love with when I first came here as a teenager no okay until next time bye take care If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams. 
tailgating pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.